By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I just wanted to make a quick announcement before this week's episode. Ever since my book, The Four Foundations, came out in June, I kept getting the same question. Hey, I don't read books. I only listen to them. Where's the audiobook? So I spent the summer reading my book into a microphone, got it edited, and made a PDF companion for all of the visuals. Even worse, I had to listen to myself read the book for 10 hours just to double-check everything. For everyone who hates the sound of their own voice like I do, I think you know how painful that must have been. So I'm excited to announce that if you do want to listen to the book rather than read it, it is now available on every major Amazon, Audible, and iTunes market around the world. Just search for the Four Foundations of Golf. Thanks again for everyone's support, and now we can get into this week's episode, which is unfortunately more about me. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf, and as always, I'm joined by Adam from Adam Young Golf. So before we get into today's topic, you know, we were talking about this before we recorded. I want to give a little shout out to our friends over at Chasing Scratch who are, what would you call them? You can't say there are, usually people say it's like, oh, that's our sister podcast, whether our brother podcast, is that, would that be the competition? No, (laughs) I think there are (laughs) our companions. We have a lot of people listening to both shows. I think people listen to Mike and Eli for the laughs, the entertainment, and and certainly they, they learn some improvement stuff from them. And then they come to us for a little bit more 
hardcore improvement, but they go hand in hand. They're the funny version of us. Exactly. They, They're the poor implementation of our philosophies, basically. <laughs> so I spent the last weekend, I traveled to North Carolina to the final major and some other events and spent time with the Velcron, which is their community surrounding the podcast. And it was just an incredible I had so much fun and I finally got to meet those guys in person and we just like had the best time ever. It was, I just want to give a shout out to like the community they've built, meeting all the people in person, everything that's going on at that show is very special. And if you haven't listened to what they're doing, they're just wrapping up season five. You could start from the beginning. It's it's hilarious and you're going to get sucked in. I promise you. How many people were at the event? I think we had upwards of like 60, 70, 80 people at one point. You know, we had multiple events like Friday was a practice round. Saturday was the final major where we all watched Mike and Eli play a match. I can't disclose what happened because I'm not sure when this episode will come out and when their episode will come out. Sunday, we had the Punch Cut Classic, which was like a fun tournament. And then Monday was the Velcron Invitational, which unfortunately I couldn't play. But yeah, and there was events every night. I mean, there was a marching band, a helicopter, just absolute insanity. It was like the attention to detail and all of like the jokes that were put around the course. And it was amazing. I heard you play pretty well, right? Yeah, I was. I confided to you that I was a little... I was a little anxious going there. I was, you know, a lot of people listen to our show. They've they've read my book, maybe seen my site at this point, and they're probably expecting a, a good golfer. So I didn't want to stink it up. So luckily, I, I shot a few rounds under par. So I, I lived up to our, our reputation there. So I represented the sweet spot well. Nice, thank you, John. I rested up with my ingrown toenail. Yeah. <laughs> Adam was Adam was down for the count with uh, surgery on his big toe. Yeah, but all fine now. I'll come out next time and beat you all. <laughs> just put I was some saying what I had a, what I had a great idea was we should do a match where one of us pairs up with Mike and Eli and maybe do like a best ball scramble or something. I think that would be a, a pretty heated match. Maybe that's an idea for next time. I would love that. Yeah, that yeah, sounds good. That'd be great. Yeah, so check out Chasing Scratch. Those guys are awesome. And thank you. I know there's a lot of people at the event who are probably listening to this. And just thank you for everyone for welcoming me with open arms. I absolutely love meeting all of you. And it was an awesome time. Cool. Now we can talk about today's episode. More about me, yeah. really. We're just going to brag about me the whole time. So, what's the topic of today's episode, John? So, a month ago, I guess we teased the topic a little bit in our goals episode with David McKenzie. We were talking about, you know, a lot of people come to him wanting to win their club championship and prepare for it mentally. I talked about some of my thoughts on it. And a month ago, I did go on to win my club championship. I have, I'm the champion. Congratulations. Yeah. Da, 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 da. So, I thought we could do an episode on. You know, it was just so much harder than I thought it would be. And there was a lot of crazy stuff going through my head. There was been a lot of some embarrassments in the past. And I'm sure a lot of people come to you with that goal in mind. Like, what can I do to win my club championship? And maybe this episode is not just about that, but it's about dealing with nerves and embarrassment and all the things that run through our heads when we're playing amongst our peers What's the format of your event? So the format, our club, and we actually have a lot of listeners from St. George's where I belong in East Setauket, New York on Long Island. So what's up, everyone? Thanks for listening. We fashion ourselves a really good playing club. So we have 
a format is for the championship flight, there is a two-round qualifier. So there's 16 spots for match play. And the champion of the prior year gets automatic exemption. They are the number one seed. So we have people playing for seeding in the other 15 spots. So there's two 18-hole stroke play rounds. And then if you make it past that, you get your seeding and you play round of 16, round of eight, semifinals. And then the final match is 36 holes. So it's a it's a lot of golf. And we've got some really good players. We I think we've got about eight or nine guys who are between, you know, plus handicap to about a one or two handicap. A lot of guys who have won it before. So it's stiff competition. There's some really good players there. And it, it's a lot of fun too. That's the way it should be. It's a good test of everyone's game. So you said there was some embarrassing stories. <laughs> yeah. So that- yeah, there's a few thoughts I'd like to get across on what I've learned and maybe not learned. And, and hopefully people will get some good stuff out of this. Before we talk about the triumph, though, I'd like to humble myself in front of everyone. I had, this was in 2020. I think it was one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. I know it was definitely the most embarrassing moment in my golf life, but it's something that scarred me so deeply that it's with me on every short putt I hit, <laughs> probably sounds, to this day. Sounds deep. Yeah, it was deep. <laughs> it, it was dramatic. I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've shared this story on the pod before. I definitely did not write about it when it happened. Like it, it went to a deep, dark place in my soul and I had to kind of lock it up there. But I figured if you want to be good in golf, get better, especially in a competitive context. And if it is in the context of, of winning your club championship, experience is really important. And unfortunately, to develop that experience, there's going to be some bad stuff that happens. You're going to need to go through some scars. I can't think of many golfers I know that are good tournament players, club champion type level players who haven't had some big blunders on the course. So I will quickly tell you all what happened. What do you think it is, Adam? I have no idea. I don't think I've ever heard this story before. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to, let's debut it here. So in 2020, our format was only eight golfers made it to match play. And I was not playing well that summer. That was the year of COVID. So it wasn't a a great year for anyone, but I had, I think that summer I was a little distracted. I had a family, a very close family member who was going through some really bad health issues and I wasn't very focused on the course. So I played very poorly in the qualifying and I got stuck in a playoff for the final spot. So I'll quickly go through what happened. The whole club comes out to watch because it's exciting to watch a sudden death playoff. And so there's tons of people watching. You know, that adds an element of pressure. First hole, we I think we both parted. I hit a six-footer to par the hole. Then we go to a really long par five on our course. It's like 570. I've never gotten there in two. I blast my drive and then hit literally the best hybrid of my life and landed just short of the green. And I think my opponent was just off the green. So what was going through my head at that time is I, I felt like I was showing off a little bit. I was like, hey, everyone, look at this. It was like I was I was being a little obnoxious internally and I thought I had it at that point. But I three-putted and we both parred. Then we went to the next hole. I had an okayish drive in the rough. My opponent it was also in the rough. He missed the green. And then I stick one to five feet. And there's more peacocking internally. I'm feeling really good about myself. I, I think I have this wrapped up. So he hits his wedge shot to about four feet and it's like just inside my ball. So I have a five footer to make birdie and win this thing. I think it was breaking slightly right to left and I was convinced I was going to make it. And I just hit it through the break and then something really strange happened. 
I think I had literally eight inches left. And this was stroke play, not match play. Something in my brain thought it was match play. Something happened. And I walked up to it and just tapped it really quickly and completely missed the hole. It couldn't have been more than eight or six inches. And everyone just like gasped. And I looked up and I'm like, oh my God, what did I just do? I missed an eight inch. And it was just, you could hear everyone like, oh my God. (laughs) And then he makes his putt and beats me. I remember I was just in such disbelief. I went in the car, I called my wife and I'm like, I think I'm going to vomit. She's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I just can't explain to you the embarrassment that I just had. And everyone saw me coming back to the clubhouse and one guy came up to me. He's like, dude, what did you do? And I'm like, not now. (laughs) That one hurt me in a deep place, a really deep place. It was, I think it, you know, getting to some of the points I want to talk about is I think when you play in, in your club against your peers, there's a lot more added pressure because everyone knows each other, whereas other competitions are kind of more anonymous. You're playing with strangers most of the time. So there's a lot of wanting to impress your friends and play well and beat them. And this was just, as soon as it happened, I know everyone was going to be talking about it and be like, one of those, oh, do you see what Sherman did? Like, oh man, that was horrible. And I was just very, very, very embarrassed. It was tough to swallow. Hmm. I'm trying to think, trying to drag up some demons from my past, but I think I suppressed <laughs> them really, really well. I think most of my embarrassing things have actually been self-inflicted where I've maybe hit a bad shot and maybe snapped a club or something as a kid. I've obviously learned skills to to not do that anymore. But yeah, I think most of mine were, there was such this deep desire to win and play well all the time that you know any bad shot was met with great frustration from me as a kid so I still have that in me I'm still not a fully recovered aggressive golfer but uh rageaholic yeah rage golfer yeah that's that's me internally but I have learned skills to be able to suppress it plus you know as you as you get older things become more important, right? Think other things in your life become more important and golf is more of just an enjoyment and a hobby. But yeah, that was interesting. I thought you were going to say, John, that you you hit it to eight inches and then you picked it up thinking it was match play, but I don't know which one's worse. <laughs> I, I did, I, to be quite honest, I don't know what I was thinking. It was just like my brain shut off. And to this day, Whenever I hit a really short putt, that's in the back of my head. That's how deep that's – I'm a pretty good putter inside. You know, I don't miss many short putts, especially not 18 inches, but I I give them a lot more attention because of that. I think Jordan Spieth missed a couple this year. He, he still won one of his tournaments, but he missed like something like that length on the third round, I remember, in the last putt. So it happens. It's just – it was – I think it was the embarrassment and a lot of that. I mean, people felt bad for me. I don't think anyone was like cheering that I missed that putt, but they felt bad. And, you know, it was something that I'm sure no one wanted to see, but I kind of internalized it as embarrassment. Eventually I let it go. But yeah, that that's a scar. I mean, I've broken clubs before in front of people when I was younger. So I've had that embarrassment too, but this one hit me a bit harder. When you did it, was it a pure accident or was it you being so upset and angry at yourself at missing it that you almost like self-sabotaging because that that's the type of thing I would have done as a kid. I've missed that five foot putt. I'm not even going to give myself the satisfaction of hitting this eight. There could have been some of that for sure. I think it was such disbelief that I'd missed the putt because I was so convinced I was going to make it. I have a pretty good memory, especially on the golf course. And it's almost like I blacked out. I cannot retrieve (laughs) 
<laughs> what happened? I don't even – I can't remember seeing the ball miss the cup. I know it missed it completely. It didn't even lip. But it was just so close that it was almost impossible for someone to miss it. So I think it was probably a mixture of disbelief that I missed the putt. And then maybe like I – because I wasn't used to playing in front of that many people – Maybe there was some of that in there. I don't know what it was, but it wasn't good. So, but yeah, I had to kind of, in a sense, looking back, I'm glad it happened because now there's nothing as bad. I hope, <laughs> actually, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say this. I shouldn't say there's nothing that can happen that's as bad as that. But up until this point, you know, that was, it's almost like it was good to experience that depth of failure, embarrassment, whatever you want to call it, because it made it took the pressure off of everything else almost. So, you know, a lot of negative things can happen to people in golf. And and I'm sure people, you know, they top drives on the first tee in front of people. Everyone knows what it's like to feel embarrassed. And I figured I would just kind of share that off the bat so everyone can feel maybe see some of that in themselves. And I think it was helpful in my eventual win. One of those things did come up to me just as you were speaking there, kind of daydreaming. And yeah, one of those traumatic experiences for me came up. But there was a happy ending to it. I'm sure I've told this story on the podcast before. But the most embarrassing thing that happened to me was I traveled to North Wales for an event. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I know it was, I felt some pressure because even my dad came up to caddy for me. I mean, you know, there were a couple of other guys with me and their fathers were there to caddy. I know it was some kind of big event. And I remember the first tee was we were starting on the ninth. So there was a long walk up to it. And as a result, there were lots of people waiting on the first tee because, you know, they were told, make sure you get up there early because it's a long walk. Don't get lost. So I get to the first tee and they announce my name and there's like 10 other juniors watching. And, you know, I've always felt like when I played junior events, I felt like the other juniors, they all had shades, sunglasses that were more expensive than my clubs. And, you know, not to say anything about my parents. My parents gave me great opportunity to play golf. I'm so thankful for them. But I was never, I never had the best equipment, never had the best clubs. And so I always felt overshadowed by these juniors. So you didn't have those sick Oakleys? Yeah, exactly. I was always playing with like secondhand <laughs> clubs that weren't fit for me. And they were like 10 years out of date and stuff like that. I even use, you know, I couldn't afford Pro V1. So I'd use... Dunlop DDHs and I kind of even played into it a little bit you know I got made fun of for not having the best golf balls and the best equipment so I kind of played into it by even using a yellow DDH <laughs> so I'm like yeah that's a classic golf ball you're bringing back memories there <laughs> exactly and I remember standing on this first tee and feeling a lot of nerves I come all the way up here we'd slept overnight as well to get there and my first shot was out of bounds I was like, oh, no, what a great start. So I teed it up again, out of bounds. I'm like, oh, you're kidding me. Two in a row. Teed up the third one, out of bounds. I'm like, oh, God. I managed to punt the fourth one down there. Someone, I think it was necked and skinny, and but it was it was safe. I think I took like an 11 up that hole. Yeah, so that was the most embarrassing for me to thing for me to hit those three shots in a row out of bounds while all these other juniors are, are there, and I could hear them talking as well. I could hear them sniggering, laughing, and so it was. It was. I just wanted to crawl into a hole and die. <laughs> but good, the silver 
outline of that was the silver lining of that was I went on and I finished second in the tournament. So even after that bad hole. That's a great comeback. After an 11, a lot of people had walked off the course. Yeah, and I think there's two things. Number one, I lowered my expectations. I'm just like, well, I'm out of the tournament. I'm just going to play for fun. Yeah, and I, I nothing, managed to play. Nothing bad could happen now. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing was it was really raining hard. And I think that made a lot of other people completely give up. And for some reason, I didn't give up. I said, well, I'm going to I'm gonna challenge myself here to stick with this and just see what I can produce, see what I can salvage from the rest of it, because I do not want to shoot a 90 here. Like I, I know everybody's going to be looking at the end, you know, what did that guy shoot? The guy who hit three, three out of bounds on the first, you know, they're all going to be looking at what score did I shoot? 100, 120. So I wanted to make sure I had some pride left. So there was those two elements there. Don't give up and lower my expectations at the same time. It's an important lesson because whether you're playing in your club championship, you're trying to play in a local event, whatever level it is, when you play competitively, you're putting your game on the line and you're accepting that anything can happen and that can happen in front of other people. So if you do it enough, something very embarrassing like me missing that putt or you pumping three out of bounds, like that's going to happen. And it sucks. It feels really bad, but it is part of the deal. And it's something you have to accept if you are going to play that kind of golf, because you can't just put an X on the scorecard. It's just different. So that is, we could start off the episode with that, just hopefully relieve some tension and, and almost giving yourself permission to do it and don't scold yourself. I tried to get past it after a few days. I think I did, but yeah, this stuff's going to happen in some version to you eventually. And if it has, it's okay. Yeah. I mean, it taught me a, a good lesson. You know, when I stand on the tee, if I do hit a bad shot on the first few holes, I always remind myself of that situation where I took an 11 up the first and still managed to finish quite well. So you never know what's going to happen in the future. You know, you could play a great round of golf at the end. The worst thing you can do is give up in, in my experience. You know, it's, yep. there's yeah, nothing to be gained from that. It's complete loss. It's a waste of your time. It's a waste of your energy. Whereas if you could, hey, if you can shoot a 90 or whatever a bad score is for you, but you can walk off saying, you know what, I, I gritted that out. I didn't give up. Then you're still learning a valuable skill there. Yep. It's a skill. It's a habit. We've talked about that in other episodes. You know, you can call it grit, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, that is a habit. If the round is maybe, quote unquote, lost, it doesn't mean you stop playing because there's still something to be gained from it that can be used in future competitive rounds. So you can't think about each round singularly. It's a body of work and it's your development and experience. Yeah, that's why I want to bring this up because these are all pieces of the puzzle. So yeah, embarrassment is part of that. So one of the questions that I got on Twitter and we always seem to get from people who are looking forward to a singular event Maybe it's a club championship. Maybe it's your city amateur tournament. You always get these questions like, well, what can I do differently to prepare for this? Almost like they're studying for the big exam or cramming for the big exam. Do you get questions like this a lot from readers of your site and people who, who take lessons from you? Yeah, it's a, it's a big question. How do I prepare for tournaments? I, I think there's certain things you can do, but certain things that you, you shouldn't do. I mean, well, how did you prepare for your your event. I really didn't. My view is, and again, this is probably different for every player. I don't think there's anything you can do that's like special, like a week or two weeks before 
other than just playing and keeping your game fresh and maybe, you know, practicing, like for me, it was some short game stuff, just, just making sure that that was sharp. I actually didn't play a lot leading to the club championship. I had in August, we went on a family vacation and I was kind of burnt out. I was playing a lot of tournaments in June and July and we had some really bad humidity and heat in the New York metro area this summer. So I, I kind of took a few weeks off and then prior to the club championship, I played a couple of good matches with friends of mine who were really good players. I think that tuned me up nicely. But to answer that question from people like, what can I do differently or special? I almost think that's a mistake in itself because then you're putting more and more pressure on the result, which I think is one of the biggest problems most people have when they're in these situations. They get uncomfortable. They've been building it up for months, maybe a year. And they're like, oh, the day has come. I've done all my practice and checked off all the boxes. And then all of a sudden they get on the course and it's just a total disaster because they just can't get past their nerves and their comfort level. So my philosophy on it is that Yeah, I think your game wants to be fresh. I think playing golf is important. I think, I think short game practice, you know, working on speed control and wedge play before a tournament can be a little bit more fruitful than, let's say, your driver or irons, just because I think, you know, you kind of got what you got as a ball striker, but you can sharpen up the short game rather quickly. But I think when you show up to a singular event that's important to you, the sum total of your skill and preparation for a long time shows up. That could be for years. It's not what you did the the prior week. You're not cramming for that test. So I would caution people from trying to do anything too special beforehand and, and expecting that to produce some type of result. That's kind of my overall philosophy on the preparation. Yeah, it's not golf is not like exams, I suppose, mental or intellectual, where the more the more revision you do the greater your chance of of having the right answer when it comes to the test. You know, golf is not like exactly. that. You can prepare more and more and more for golf and still just have a random result on the day. Now, I would say long-term, you know, if the more you practice, as long as it's doing the right things, you're going to see improvement. But from day to day, there's so, there's so much random nature to it. You can't force a good result through preparation. I think you, if, if anything, you're more likely to force a bad result by over-preparing. Yeah, I think the trap that a lot of players fall into, and I I've probably fell into a lot myself, is, yeah, let's say you went to the range every day before that tournament and you're like striping it and everything looks good and you're like, oh my God, and then your expectations are kind of getting higher and higher. Yeah, I just maybe it goes back to our episode on what you can control and can't control. If it's just one singular event or maybe, you know, a week or two of performance, like, yeah, this game is so random that you know, you often hear stories about, well, how do golfers prepare for the Masters? Some guys take a week off. Mm-hmm. You know, you always hear stories that, you know, maybe someone like Phil showed up to Augusta early and, and worked at the course. Other guys like to play a PGA Tour event the week before. There's no right answer. And you could argue that there's no trend between taking the week off or showing up to an event beforehand is better or worse. It just is. My point is, is that, you know, what you said, how they've been practicing for the last year. What are their habits for the last year? What is their skill level? If you've been working on that and increasing, moving the needle in a positive direction, then like, yeah, your overall chances are better. Yeah, I wouldn't tell anyone like, oh, here's my game plan for making sure you're going to play your best in your club championship. I don't think there is one. I really don't. Like you said, you can stripe it all 
week on the range and then turn up on the day and it's just you've woken up the wrong way out of bed and a different patterns emerge but i suppose that's why i talk so much about differential practice and building the tools sure. to be able to to fix those things i tweeted something the other day about when i was learning golf as a kid i used to think it was a case of you build this perfect swing and then that swing never fails on you and that concept is so persistent in lots of golfers it's just not true you're never going to build a swing that doesn't fail on you so what you have to do instead or as well is try to build tools that can help you fix problems on the fly so the problems we always talk about it's going to be a ground contact problem a face contact problem or face direction problem if you wake up and you go on the range and you're hitting it awful it's going to be one of those three things so, you know, if you're having a really bad day, maybe you're fatting every shot, maybe you're hooking every shot. So you've got to have the ability to manipulate and maneuver those around. So that kind of changes when you understand that it changes how you train. You're less focused on, right, I got to groove something because, you know, whatever you groove could be gone tomorrow. And you're more focused on, right, let's build some tools that I can implement if slash when stuff hits the fan. So that's a completely different scenario. Now, it takes pressure off your game because I know that if I do turn up and, and things are poor, I can calibrate or recalibrate things on the course. You're going to still have good days and bad days for sure, but those bad days are going to be a lot better if you have tools that you can implement. Yeah, absolutely. And if anything, the golfer that's striping it, back to that example, if they had some great practice sessions leading up to the big round, it's almost like a shock when you hit a bad tee shot or opening few bad shots. You're like, where did that golfer go? And then it, it sends you into a panic. So, and again, having the tools to deal with that and saying like, okay, what, what was going on here? How can I hopefully save this round is something we always talk about. Another thing I wanted to, maybe this is a word of caution, something like that. If you're only playing, like, let's say that, that the club championship is the big event for you of the year. And you've got it circled on the calendar and you're working all winter and spring and you're trying to get your game ready for this one event. I, too, also think that can be a problem because you're kind of putting it on a pedestal, so to speak. And I found that the best way for not just myself, but a lot of other golfers is maybe not hyping it up too much and understanding that there's so much out of your control. And I think golfers who play in a lot of tournaments start to realize that you could, especially if it's match play, you don't know who you're going to face in the first round. Like, for example, this was my fourth attempt at my club. And the other two years I lost in the first round to golfers who I think they both shot around even and I shot, you know, they both matches went to the 18th hole. And what was the difference? They made a few clutch putts. I missed a few. Maybe there was an opening for me that I didn't go through. But, you know, if you're playing with golfers at a similar level to you, there's going to be a lot of stuff like one bounce, one putt that goes in. There's just maybe a guy gets really hot and that's the difference. It's really out of your control. You don't know, like, let's say if you'd played on the other side of the bracket, the guy who shot an 85, that happened to me. I remember I played a guy in the first round who just went on an absolute heater and he just beat me. He just played better than me. Let's say I was one stroke better in the qualifying and had a different seating. 
I would have played the guy who didn't shoot even. I would have played the guy who shot 10 over and I would have won easily. That's what I'm talking about. There's so much out of your control that it's hard to go into it thinking that you're going to say like, all right, I put all this work in. I'm definitely going to win or I want to win. I think the only answer to that is if you see a player who is – if your skill is so much more superior to the other players, like some clubs, you know, maybe it's like a plus two handicap versus a five handicap. Some clubs don't – they have a big disparity in in the level of golfers. Then I'd say, yeah, I'd I'd give that plus two handicap a a very high chance of winning because – you know, the, the level of players is just not the same. But if you're in like my situation where everyone's at kind of a one, two stroke range and handicap, it just depends on which golfer is going to show up that day sometimes and which bounce is better. It's, it's very slim margins. So there's, it's hard to go into it saying, I'm going to practice really hard and win this thing where it's just saying like, yeah, prepare, but just go into it with the right mindset hoping you're going to win, hoping you're going to play well, but understanding that like some stuff's going to happen that's really going to kind of rattle you and be like, oh my God, I can't believe you made that putt. And you just have to get through it and move on to the next hole. There's just so much randomness in this game at a competitive level. I've been the product or I've I've been hurt by that stuff in the past. And my mistakes have been, I've focused too much on the bad luck that I've had. Yep. <laughs> and the good luck that my opponent has had. And that really pees me off <laughs> so i'm playing and all like I, i'm th- all the way through the round all i'm thinking of is oh that bad bounce i had and they've been lucky they hold that 20 foot putt earlier and that just upset my entire game not just from an emotional standpoint but then it changes things like your strategy it changes your ability to just see different shots you know you stand over a putt and oh there were situations for example where a player would hit it in the trees and then I would change my strategy and then they'd go and find it. And I'd be thinking, how the hell did they find that ball? That's exactly, like, that. and yeah, then yeah. <laughs> I, I regret, I think, why did I just lay up that shot up there? I should have gone for it. Like there was no reason why I shouldn't have. I played so cautiously because I thought they were never finding that ball. And uh, it's, you know, it's luck that they found it. So try not to change your strategy. And also just try and flip the mindset a little bit into focusing on the good luck that you've had as well. And even trying to notice some of the bad luck that your opponent has had. Because I think we're all hardwired to do it the opposite way. Absolutely. That's my next bullet point. Thanks for jumping the gun, by the way. (laughs) But yeah, I think, again, I don't just because I won one of these things doesn't make me (laughs) the end all be all. But speaking with people like Scott Fawcett and, and other people who are very... Other tournament players I know, very similar advice emerges where getting back to placing too much emphasis on one event and thinking you can control the outcome where it's more saying like, I will control my inputs and my process and my strategy and my routine and my emotional state. I'm going to control all of that. And then whatever happens, happens. Like I, I cannot control if my opponent has a hole in one or, or just happens to make all the eight footers that day. That is the crazy part about this game, and what and that's honestly what makes it exciting too. That's what makes a lot of these a lot of these events are played in match play, and I think match play. My belief is that you know if you played a four round stroke tournament, you're gonna the better player is going to win most of the time because you know you're you're removing you know in match play you can take a nine on a hole and it's still a loss whereas in stroke play that might take you out of the entire tournament so i think match play 
adds more randomness and i think it's good i actually like match play in these tournaments just because it allows a wider range of golfers to potentially win it whereas stroke play i think if you played three four rounds of stroke play it would weed out the the stronger players from the weaker ones but you know a weaker player could beat a stronger player one day in match play i've never liked match play i'm always i'm, I'm the grinder who doesn't really shoot incredibly yeah. low scores so for me uh the consistent chipping away at people is is what i like with stroke play match play really bugged the hell out of me for the fact that you you know you could get that player who hit a nine and they still beat you we are going to take a quick break and we will be right back we have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands true linkswear they just released their new lux g shoes which is their first big release of 2024 and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonder Lux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash SWEETSPOT. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweetspot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So yeah, so getting to the match play strategy, this is another big question I get from people all the time. Maybe it's in the context of playing a match against your buddy in a Nassau on a Sunday morning. It could be in your club championship or it could be, you know, there's plenty of other competitive tournaments that have match play. And your instinct, as you said, and mine for a while, I think I have more experience. It's very hard not to do, but your your instinct is to react to the opponent, right? Like if your opponent, like let's say you're on a tough par four and like you said, your opponent hits one in the trees and you're like, oh, that's gone. I'm going to hit iron now. 
And now, you know, initially you were going to hit your driver and you say, I'm going to play it safe because I saw that ball go in the trees. You're operating with incomplete information. As you said, that player found the ball and got it on the green. You can't know that on the tee. So I think the hardest thing to do in match play is not to react to every single shot your opponent's hitting, whether they make that 20-footer that you weren't expecting them to make, whether they had a crazy up and down, like let's say they were short-sided in a crappy lie and they got it to two feet and you're like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. If you are reacting from shot to shot emotionally and strategically, you're not going to win over the long run. You're not going to play well. I don't believe that's the the proper mindset. I think good targets are good targets no matter what. And you have to do your best to have your own process and try not to react to what your opponent is doing, good or bad. Because there's some cases where your opponent hits these crappy shots. I remember in the first time I was playing, I was like two or three up early in the match and my opponent hit a horrible shot into a bunker from like 110 yards and I remember being like oh yes I'm gonna win this hole and then I did the same exact thing and then he actually ended up winning the hole and it turned the momentum of the match around that was a mental mistake because I placed too much emphasis on what happened to him and it took me out of my routine and my focus on that shot and that was something that was important to learn So I don't believe that you should be changing targets. Just try your best to, you know, we have plenty of resources on the show on strategy and pre-shot routines and process. Try and go in with the blinders on and do the same thing every time. And maybe there are some instances, perhaps it's like, you know, if you're four up with four to go, yeah, maybe there's some, what's the word I'm looking for? game theory, whatever the word is, where then it makes sense where you could start making different decisions. But if it's early in the match or in the middle of the match, like I just, I think you have to resist what's going on with your opponent and just keep your focus on your own game. It's very hard to do. Yeah, I did the other day where I hit a very careless chip, you know, didn't go through my full routine, didn't hit it with the same focus because my opponent was say 30 feet away and they're notorious for kind of three putting those ones and they ended up holding it for the half (laughs) and I greatly regretted not having a little bit more care I mean obviously it could have turned out the exact same result but I certainly could have taken more care over mine and I was upset at that and then that affected the rest of the round a little bit or the next few holes as well while I'm cursing the fact that they have good luck (laughs) and I didn't so yeah Yeah, it feels personal, Mm -hmm, you know, when it's almost worse when the opponent, like you said, hits hits the bad shot or you have the expectation they're going to have a bad shot and they hit a good one and you're like, ugh. It it just, I think that's why match play is very interesting to me. The more I play it competitively, it's because it's more of this like one-on-one mental battle because most of the time you're just worried about yourself. And in this context, now you're looking and seeing what your opponent's doing right in front of you. Whereas in a stroke play tournament, they could be on a completely different hole. So I still believe putting the horse blinders on as much as possible is the way to go. It's even worse for me sometimes because I know the math behind it. So like if they hole at Yeah, you're like, they like a 3% chance of making that putt. Yeah, and you're like, what it. the hell? Yeah, exactly. Well, I've got some good story. I'm going to get into maybe some stories from the match play part of the tournament, which I'll share with you. But I had a few of those happen to me and you have to do your best to just like, it's almost like you have to expect it to happen. Yeah. I th- maybe, maybe that's the way to go is say, you know, they drain that 30 footer. No big deal. You know, just 
you just keep going whereas you're like mother effort <laughs> like how did they do that it's hard not to i don't want to say that like i wasn't thinking about my opponents of course i was but it was a lot less than i used to and i think that was an important part of the experience but yeah i don't think match play strat i don't think there is technically a quote-unquote match play strategy i don't think it exists really that's my opinion I think good routines, good targets, good process is all about consistency in golf. And if you have that in your game, you keep it the same in match play because once you start changing things, I think that's where you get into trouble. Like if you had all your tee shot targets selected before the round and you start changing them on on three or four holes based on what your opponent's doing, maybe on that tee shot or the prior hole, you're like, oh, I'm three down. I need to get more aggressive here where you shouldn't be. Or let's say your opponent knocked it close to the pin. This, this is a classic situation. And this is what I mean by incomplete info. Let's say you're on a par three. And, you know, the pin's tucked on the right side. And you were rightly going to aim more towards the center. You don't have honors. Your opponent goes first. And they just knock it stiff. Let's say they're eight feet away. And it looks very close from the tee. Maybe it looks like it's two feet, but it's actually eight feet. So, you know, 50% make rate for a tour player. Let's say it's 30% for that player. Now, you're tempted to say, oh, you know, I'm one down here. I'm two down here. Now I got to aim at the pin. And you adjust your target. And all of a sudden, you leave the face a little bit open. And now you're short-sided in the bunker. You just gave that person an easy win. Whereas, let's say you would aim towards the center and you hit it to the center of the green maybe and you had a 30-foot putt, the odds have not shifted that far away in your favor. Hitting that shot and choosing that target, assuming that your opponent was going to make that putt, I believe is a mistake. And it takes you out of what you were going to do and what was the optimal decision. So I'm not a fan of these, you know, react to every single thing and adjust based on what's going on. I, I just think it over the long run, if you want success, that that's not going to do yeah, it. Allow them to win it. Don't don't give it to them. <laughs> you know, don't uh... exactly. And yeah, I'm not the first person to say something like this. But now that I've kind of lived through it enough, I, I I truly believe in it. You know, you have your you have your decisions, and you try and stick with them the best you can. So, what are some of the stories from your matches? Okay, so I'll give some highlights. I would say going into this, I was I actually felt very confident. I felt very calm. And I actually had this vision in my head of winning for some reason. I had this like very clear, I don't know what you would call it, manifestation in my mind of hoisting some type of trophy. I don't know. I just had this like thought that I was going to win this year. And I probably thought the same thing last year and I didn't win, but so that- whatever. I just felt, I felt very calm and comfortable. I've, play, I've been playing my best golf this year. My handicap's the lowest it's ever been. But again, you don't know what's going to happen. And I'm... And I think I was okay with not winning too, like it, but I just felt very good going into it. So the first, the first two qualifier rounds, like I was just striping it. I shot a sixty nine both days, which is one under at my course, and those honestly were the worst scores I could have shot. If I had made a few shorter birdie putts, I could have easily shot in three, four, five under each day. Like I was very much locked in. I got the medalist honors and was the two seed. So. I made a very early statement that my game was in a good place. But again, that was stroke play. And then you transition to match play a weekend later and you don't know what's going to happen. So a very good start. So first match, I was playing, I think he's a four or five handicap, solid player at my club. And he fought me really hard on the front nine, but I just didn't make a mistake. I think I was one under and closed him out on the 14th hole. It was a good match. He played very well. I just 
didn't make him. I don't think I made a bogey. So I did, just didn't give him any openings and it was a good start. So the second match, the round of eight, was I think the most heated one. It was the guy I'd lost to the year before. His name is Tom. Tom does listen to the show now, I think. So hello, Tom, if you're listening and thanks for the good match. So the prior year, Tom had beaten me in the first round and I think he had shot under par. He played great. We went to the 18th hole and he just straight up beat me. He got on the par five and two. It was a really good match. So of course, you know, I wanted my revenge and my putter got super hot. My putter has been really hot this year. And in this match, it's just, you know, you have all these eight footers that mean something. I just kept making him, making him, making him, but he did not give up either. So I think we went to where the fireworks happened and I'll get straight to the point for some entertainment value just to show you that you never know what's going to happen. So I think I was, I was two up. Yeah, I was two up on the 14th hole. He hits a good drive. I actually hit one blocked. I was blocked out in the trees. He hits a good shot to 15 feet. And I actually hit a nice running shot onto the green at a similar distance. Very hard left to right putt that broke probably about three cups. He just missed his birdie putt. And I had the same read, same line. And I just rolled mine in perfectly. So I had been making all types of momentous type putts all day long. And I felt like, okay, that's a another maybe dagger to, to secure this I thing. He hated you at this point. He was not happy. As he should not have been. It was it was if I was on the other end of it, I would I was making a lot of putts all day, so I would have been a bit pissed myself. But again, yeah, that's the way it goes in these things. So we go to the fifteenth hole, which is a tough par three at my course. It looks like a tough, easy tee shot, but the green has multiple tiers. If you're in the wrong spot, you are dead. So I had a good shot to the back of the green. I probably had, I mean, it was probably like a 30 or 40 up foot uphill putt. And then Tom chunks his tee shot. And I thought he hit it into the fescue, but he just missed the fescue. And he's three down at this point. So if I win this hole, it's over. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, I've broken his will. <laughs> And yeah, you know, yeah, I did get outside of my zone a little bit, but it was a tough match. And maybe I was like letting my mental guard down a little bit. He hits it to about 30 feet. I actually, did I three putt? I can't remember. I think I had made bogey. I three putted and he had a 30 footer. Maybe this happened beforehand. Anyway, he drains a 30 footer for par. And I, I remember it now. And I had like a 10 footer to have him and I missed it. So he wins that hole. So now we go to the 16th hole, short par four. I miss a birdie putt to win the match. He makes his birdie putt. So now I'm only two up going into the 17th hole. And the end of our course is a really good match play scenario. We have very short holes, but they're like, if you miss the greens, you can make doubles. Like they're very, they're very unnerving shots. So the 17th hole at our course is 125 yard par three. Very tiny green, huge runoff at the front. You miss it front, you're in these deep bunkers that are 10 feet below the hole. You're making bogey. You miss it left, right, long, you're dead. So Tom hits it on the green and I'm a little jacked up and there's a little bit of wind. So I'm going to, I usually hit a a sawed off pitching wedge on this hole. And as soon as I hit it, I'm like, that's over. And I just nuked it right over the green. I'm in the back bunker and just dead. I actually hit a good bunker shot, but I make bogey, he makes par. So now I'm only one up with one to go. And everyone's watching and 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 in my head I'm like, 
okay, slow it down. It's okay. I, I was still confident I was going to win, but now there's some bad thoughts coming into my head because he beat me on 18 the, the prior year by hitting a great shot onto our par five and two. He hits a great drive. I pull my drive a little bit, so I'm not sure where it ended up. So he's got a perfect lie, hits a shot that I think is going in the bunker, and it gets a perfect bounce and goes on the right side of the green. And I'm like, oh boy. And I have a my ball is about a foot above my feet. I wasn't even sure if I could advance it. It was so far above my feet. And I have about 200 yards, and I'm like, just hit the shot. I think you could do it. And I hit an absolute laser on the left side of the green. We both two putt for birdie, and I, I won the match on the 18th hole. So that that was a pretty dramatic finish because I went from thinking it was over on the 15th to now he's just surging at me after you know I thought I had taken the momentum away from him. So you just you just don't know what's going to happen. To sound like you were reverting to the mean, <laughs> you played really well, held some good putts. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he again that 30 footer he had on 15. You know, what are the odds he makes that under that pressure? maybe less than 10%, but he made it. And it was kind of one of those things where I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll take it on the next hole. And then he buries the next hole. I'm like, okay, I'll take it on the next hole. I make bogey. I'm like, okay, I'll take it on the next hole. And luckily I did, but it was a, you know, credit to him. He really surged back when, you know, I thought on the 14th hole with that birdie putt, I'd kind of taken the wind out of his sails. That's the type of stuff that could happen. And you just kind of have to absorb it. Which match was this in the series? This was the round of eight. So a quick recap of the next one was against the two-time club champion. I'd lost him before. Great player. I had a really great start to the match. Was up two up. And then we get to the ninth hole. I three putt. I lose that hole. I'm only at one up. Go to the 10th hole. I make a sloppy bogey. So we're back to even. And, you know, momentum's going in his favor. Tough par three, like 180. He kind of hits a thinnest shot and gets away with it and lands it to about eight feet. It's a really tough pin placement. So that was one of those shots where you're like, oh, he really got away with that. Maybe a little lucky. And I hit a good shot, but it went long. So this is where putting, I think putting is probably maybe disproportionately important in match play because it can carry such mental significance to your opponents. I had a 50-footer downhill like really tough i was just trying to two putt this thing and it just goes in the hole perfectly and then he misses it so i go one up i have a 10 footer on the next hole to have the hole i make it i have a 15 footer on the hole after that two balls out breaking left to right to have the hole i make that you know i win the i win the next hole so i'm two up on 15 again similar thing happens he makes a really nice birdie putt of about 30 feet. So I'm only one up going into the 16th hole. 16th hole again is a short par four. We both have birdie putts. I go first. I'm 15 feet away and I just drain it right on their last revolution. Perfect speed. Make it. He misses. Go to the 17th hole. We both par and I won the match. So another kind of dramatic finish. I made a putt. He made a putt and it just, you know, went in my favor, but I made four putts on the back nine one was 50 feet 10 footer 15 footer 15 footer it's a lot of strokes gained there <laughs> exactly a lot of sh- like the putter got really hot in both of those matches so that got me to the final nice all right let's talk about the final so the final i am playing the club champion from last year great guy. His name's mike 36 holes course was brutally hard they gave us impossible pins it was dried out it was windy it was not going to be a birdie fest it was going to be a survival fest and 
I just played really I, I was I was nervous, but not really that nervous. I was more looking forward to it and it was gonna be fun. We had some people watching in the early round. I got up really quickly. I think I was five up through sixteen. So I was I just didn't make any mistakes and Mike didn't have his sharpest stuff. But then I three putted the seventeenth hole, he takes one back, he's four down. And then I hit an absolute horrible duck hook on the 18th hole of the first match, the first 18, and he hits a perfect drive and I have to like chip out and I'm like, all right, this this could be a moment where I don't want to lose momentum going into the afternoon. And there was a really tough pin and I we somehow halved it with bogeys where one of us actually could have won the hole at both points. So I go into the afternoon match four up. So I'm sitting down, we're having lunch, I'm sitting by myself, and I start seeing like everyone coming from the club. There's like this armada of golf carts. Like we got a ton of support in our club. It's awesome. It's been around since 1917. There's a lot of history there. And there was, I don't know, 100 to 150 people would be my guess of like people who are coming out to watch the afternoon round. I was sitting on the deck eating a turkey sandwich. And I couldn't swallow it for a second. Like I felt this as I'm watching all the people coming. I felt this jolt of anxiety. I'm like, oh my God, I can't swallow this right now. You have to eat. I calmed myself down. I finished the sandwich. But now things got serious. You got all these people watching. People are definitely pulling for him to have a comeback. I would say Mike is the more popular guy at the club. So they they probably were mostly pulling for him. So I knew I had a perhaps a crowd that was a little bit against me and wanted to see a comeback. And, you know, he came back early. He won the second hole. I chunked a chip. And then I just, I don't know. I just felt very calm. And people were asking me what was going through my head. I got some questions on Twitter. I did the things that I always talk about on this show and stuff I've learned from tournaments. I'm, you know, all those people were around, but I was so intensely focused on what was happening that I I almost didn't even see them. I was doing my breathing, playing songs in my head, just so wrapped up in my routine and trying not to think about the result that I just kind of kept going and I won some holes back. And at that point, he, you know, it, it really wasn't a close match. I, it went down to the, the 13th hole on the, on the second nine. I was, we were dorming and I hit the longest drive of my life. I hit a place on the course that I don't think I've ever seen anyone hit. I had so much adrenaline and I didn't know that my wife and kids and my parents and my wife's parents were there watching. So I hit a great wedge shot on a tough par four and closed it out. And that was it. I actually had this nice, my dad just appeared out of nowhere and we had this tiger embrace after tiger. I just like hugged him afterwards. I just kind of broke down crying. It was just it was 116 holes of intense like focus and thinking and my kids came out. It was just like this release, but it was getting to the last point I have here is like winning in golf's really hard. I think that's what I discovered. It was just, it took a lot of like deep focus for me to get through it, but it was fun. It was a great time and learned a lot. But yeah, I think there was also this like underlying confidence though, too, that I kept saying to myself, I'm like, you're not going to lose this. And every time something crazy would happen from my opponent, I would just kind of go back to my routine and my belief and, you know, get a lot of people were watching. That was fun for me. I didn't, it didn't make me, I, I didn't think I hit any embarrassing shots from the pressure. It just felt really good. But yeah, that was it. That was the story in a nutshell. It was over at that point. If you had to give a bullet point 
list of things for people listening of what they can implement in their own games i know you've you've got an entire book on it so but if you can give a little summary on what they can use in their own games to improve their chances of winning and deal with all this pressure I was talking with some people this past weekend at the Chasing Scratch event about that and they were asking me that. I think every player needs to find like their own mental cocoon (laughs) is the best way I could describe it. You need to find a place that you can go to when you're feeling embarrassed or pressure, you're trying to impress your playing partners, whatever. There's all these moments in golf that, and I think this is more in the context of competition. I don't think people need to go to this intense mental cocoon in in regular rounds. And that's a place that I had built over years. So I've been competing now for seven years, over 100 rounds, whether it's the club championship or other events I'm playing. And every time I'm paying attention to what's happening and where my mind's going. So in the past, when these things had happened in the club championship, my mind would race and my routine would be too fast. So I'm consciously slowing things down. This is something I've talked about in other episodes. But I've kind of built this little place I can go to. And I like going there now because the rest of my life, my mind is so distracted. It's like this place where I'm, I'm so intensely focused. I guess it's the zone. People talk about that in other sports. Maybe it's the zone. I don't know what you call it, but... I have these routines and these things that I do that are so comfortable to me that in the moments of the most stress and anxiety and pressure, I'm just doing those things and they're on autopilot. That's the best way I can put it. And it took a lot of failures and embarrassments and paying attention to what happened to kind of build that little place. And I think everyone's probably looks differently because I think we all react differently to pressure in golf. So for me, it's playing the songs in my head. And just humming them, that makes me feel comfortable. We're doing the breathing or you know, looking off in the distance. You know, if there's all these people watching and I'm not even looking at them, I'm staring at the trees while my opponent's hitting his shot. Anything you could do to distract yourself from the past over what happened and the future, worrying about what's gonna happen and getting to the the moment in front of you. Again, super cliched advice, but that's I think that's the aside from all of the skill stuff and strategy stuff we talk on the, about on this show. That's the most important thing because then the moment doesn't feel too big. It's almost like I'm not even thinking about the moment. I'd say like when I feel a lot of pressure, the things that I go to, I try to accept any outcome that's going to happen because I think the thing that happens when we get under these pressure situations is we start to notice the negative more or we start to fear things more and we're like I don't want this to happen I don't want that to happen hope I don't fat it in the water here and I just you know I start to sense that I'm feeling that pressure start to sense that I'm feeling tense and by the way you can play great golf with negative thoughts in your head I'm not saying that yes, should be can. the goal, <laughs> but uh, you know, I tweeted something the other day that I I just hit 14 fairways out of 14, and every single shot I stood over, I thought I have no idea where this ball is going. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, you just don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because I had had a poor warm up on the range earlier, and so I, you know, I didn't have a clue where the ball was going really. But I, I played well on the course, so you can play well, be intense. But I just accept any outcome. That was the thing. You know, I went on the course. And I'm like, well, I don't know where this ball is going, but okay, so what? 
So the other part is, you know, due to my nihilism. And just remind yourself that it doesn't matter really at, at the end of yeah, the day. Exactly. I mean, yes. I, it's just golf. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, people forget stuff. History's forgotten. <laughs> it's, I'm sure that's much harder to do if you're in the final round of an actual major and, you know, your name's about to be etched onto a, a trophy. So you are actually making history there. But, you know, at the end of the day, I, I'm pretty nihilistic. And at the end of the day, nothing matters to me. And I know that sounds like a really negative thing. And people, well, that is helpful for the way. And I think like that too, but that's, that's how you get like that's what my point is like you have to find that thing for yourself and that's a little bit for me too saying like i'm gonna be okay no matter yeah, what yeah yeah i think lots of people think nihilism is a, a really negative point of view i actually find it freeing it's like well if nothing matters it's like a neutral attitude i, I like i like the a neutral attitude in golf for a number of reasons yeah and if nothing matters you know i get to choose my own goals and and what this means really and so for me it's it's like okay well i'm putting myself in a pressure situation i also try to observe the observer is that an eckhart toll thing where you go above your ego basically sometimes under pressure we can get lost in who we are and what everything means to us and we make it bigger than it is. Whereas if you start observing the observer, so you go outside of yourself and look at your thoughts and you can start to see the ridiculousness of your thoughts sometimes. It's like, well, this doesn't, this doesn't matter. You know, it's not, it's not that big a thing. It's, you shouldn't assign so much value to this round. It doesn't dictate who you are as a person. Absolutely. And, and another thing, probably the most important thing to me that I forgot to mention is that it was fun. Why are we, whoever's listening to this, whatever you're going to play, like maybe we have some aspiring pro golfers on here. We'll set them aside. But the rest of us, why am I playing the club championship? To have fun. Like these are my friends I'm competing against. Like these are people, you know, this is a good time. The most important thing from that last day was like, yeah, it was, there was some pressure and stuff like that, but it was mostly fun. I told my opponent another friend of mine from the club was caddying for him and he was kind of on the greens all day and, and he's a great guy like he was you know cheering me on when I hit some good shots and at the end of the round I kind of went up to both of them like I mean obviously Mike wanted to beat me but he was a very nice about everything but I went to the other Mike who was caddying for him I'm like you know what I'm glad you were here because like it was just we all had a great day together because we were all like inside the ropes and everyone was watching and it was just a fun time. Like I'm sure he's going to beat me in the future and I'll beat him again. But that's the ultimate part about it is like, even if I had lost like the excitement and being there, that was fun too. I would have been disappointed of course, but yeah, if it's something that like brings you that much dread and anxiety and like you can't put it behind you for months, then I'm, then you might want to think like, well, maybe this, this type of golf isn't for me. So I always make sure to ask myself after any result, like, did you have fun? And absolutely, I had fun because I won. But other than that weird, <laughs> embarrassing moment, the other matches in the club championship were fun for me too because – I played well, my opponent played well, and they just beat me. And you gotta, that's one of those you, you tip your hat situations. But yeah, fun's gotta be up there too, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I try to go that route as well more recently. You know, the, with the loss of ego, I can, fi I can find things more fun, definitely. It doesn't mean that you give up on things or don't try hard. So, you know, stick no, into routines, yeah, grinding exactly. things out, trying to do, trying to do your best. But, 
with the acceptance of you know whatever happens if I shoot an 80 here I shoot an 80 all of this stuff is much easier said than done you know I'm certain if yep. I went oh, to yeah. the, <laughs> if I went to the chasing scratch event I would feel extreme pressure I know I would I I would feel my ego come out in in a negative way you know I'm like oh I hope I don't play a bad round because what does that mean that means that my information is not what people think it is perhaps and it shouldn't mean that stuff it doesn't mean that stuff but you know you, your brain starts to go these ways definitely so yeah just trying to trying to identify these things lose the ego and set your own goals and fun is a good one it's got to be fun. So definitely think about that. We did get some other questions on Twitter. I'll try and go through those fairly quickly. Someone asked, did any weird or controversial rules issues come into play? Actually, th there was one thing that was kind of interesting. So before the semifinal, it was very cold out that morning and I didn't have the right stuff with me. So I bought like a beanie from the pro shop and got some of those, you know, those instant hand warmers where you crack it open and it gets hot. So I put those in my pocket. I go to the first tee and my opponent, who's actually quite knowledgeable about the rules of golf before we tee off. And I thought this was very nice of him because he didn't have to do this. He said, do you have any hand warmers in your pocket? And I said, yeah, I do. He says, take them out. I said, why? He's like, well, you could be warming up the golf ball. And I'm like, I didn't even think about that. So apparently we looked up this rule afterwards with our head pro. There is a rule that if you intentionally try and do something to your golf ball, like warm it up, especially when it's cold out. And you can go back to one of our episodes with the ping guys. You don't want to leave your golf balls in the, in the car overnight when it's cold because it will affect the elasticity of the golf ball won't go as far. So there is a rule. I didn't know this, that if you intentionally try and warm up your golf ball like that, it's a penalty. Yeah. Ever, but, ever hear that one? <laughs> well, I know modifying equipment is certainly something like that, but I suppose would it be classed as intentional if you put your golf ball in your pocket? Exactly. That's what we deem the pro at my club was like, yeah, we would have never called you on that <laughs> because obviously you weren't trying to doctor your ball. But yeah, that... I mean, he, I think he was, he was just trying to be nice, making sure that like, let's say, you know, that did come up. I don't know how it would have, it would have caused some type of weirdness during the match. So I thought that was nice of him to bring it up beforehand. So yeah, that was a, <laughs> that was a weird rules thing that came up. Other than that, it was pretty straightforward. Another question I got is, will you play any games against your opponent? For example, slow walk them, do stuff like that. So I, I have seen certain players with gamesmanship during match play. I've heard stories of past champions of my club, like some guys are super slow on purpose. I don't do that, or at least I don't think I do. Maybe you can ask my opponents, but the people I'm competing against there are my friends. Of course, I want to beat them, but I don't think I need to do anything. I'm not going to cough during their backswing. I've always heard stories of Seve doing that. Maybe I'll make them putt a few short ones here and there. Maybe that's the the, the extent of my gamesmanship, but... I don't do that. I, I think I'd just rather play them straight up and see who the better golfer was that day. There is a way of doing it. I wrote an article probably about five or six years ago now, so I can't remember the specifics, but there are different types. You can lump people into different types of personality. Some people who are more a need to achieve and some people like myself who are more a need to avoid failure. So they're more motivated by avoiding failure. And so you can phrase different things to them 
<laughs> I shouldn't re- really be saying this stuff, should I? But you, you can, <laughs> Let's you hear can it. Phrase, well, now, now I'm interested to hear. I can't remember the specifics. You'd have to go to the article for the specifics. But you can phrase things in a way that's more likely to make them choke. <laughs> so say, for example, I, I know for me, if you tell me, if you phrase things in terms of how good I'm doing, how well I'm doing, and, oh, you could win this here, I'm more likely to choke. Oh, okay. Whereas if you phrase things as, oh, Adam, don't make a uh, a fool of yourself today, I'm actually more likely to perform well. Whereas that flips for someone who's more of a need to achieve. If a person was more Mm. motivated by achieving... That'd be an awkward thing to say to an opponent during a match, well, wouldn't you think? There's more there are more subtle ways of doing it, or I'm sure there are a million different phrases that you could do. Yeah. But you know, you could say to some, Oh Adam, you're playing really well here. And that oh, will yeah, make okay. me choke. That is more likely yeah. to make me choke. So if you say so I've just explained to everybody how to make me how to make me lose now. Whereas yeah, you know, if I'm playing in a three ball like against my mates or something, then I can I'm more likely to play well when I'm just trying not to be last. I know that's weird. I know it's kind of a negative mindset, but that's how I perform better, really. But usually the need to need to achieve people are more more of the people who are likely to be more successful, especially in terms yeah. of sports. So that's probably why I'm not on tour. I would consider myself a very competitive person. Maybe if it was 20 years ago and I was in this situation, maybe I would be a little bit more of a a jerk. <laughs> but the, I guess the the mellowed out version of me, like I actually like to, if my opponent hits great shots, I'll congratulate them for that. I'm just out there. I, I am out there to have fun. I'm also out there to win. But I prefer being in those scenarios where like both players play well. And I don't want to see someone like choke or beat them that way or feel like I had to get inside their head to beat them. Like that's... I'm not very interested in that. Maybe if I got into a more serious event, you know, there are a few very serious match play events around here, which I'm hoping to get competitive in. Maybe I'll use some of those tools in that situation, but certainly not against people in my club because those are like my good friends. So yeah, to answer that question, I did not knowingly play any games or intentionally play any games. Another question we had was... I'd like to hear your thoughts how competitive play does for one's overall consistency. Does it offer something essential to one's game? And should all low handicaps consider competing in some way? I mean, we've talked about this in some other episodes. I I do think that if you do put your game under pressure, whether it's a club championship, stroke play event, anything like that, I think it can have a positive effect on the rest of your golf game in the sense that when you play under more pressure and every putt counts and every shot counts a little bit more and you kind of deal with that and maybe play play some rounds that are well and you get through that, I think it can have a very positive spillover effect to the rest of your game because now normal golf doesn't seem as daunting. So for me, before I started competing – a normal round of golf would be like quite nerve wracking for me. I'd be worrying about my score, all these things and then what, what bad things could happen to me. I was so anxious. Whereas when I started playing competitively, it kind of sharpened up those skills and more importantly, made me realize that it just doesn't matter as much as I thought it did. So yeah, I, I do think competing can help raise your level of play overall. 
There is a flip side to that. I think it can actually ruin some people's enjoyment of golf if they don't like it and they keep putting themselves in that situation. It can make you feel really bad about your game if you're not, if your expectations are out of line. Like I know some people who like try and qualify for tournaments that have really no chance of qualifying and then they go and play the qualifier and play like crap. And then all of a sudden they're just in this like really bad place in their game. Like I, I don't think that's helpful. So if you're approaching it in the right way, I, I do think competitive golf can add another tool to your overall game i think it can sharpen a lot of things whether it's decision making emotional control all that kind of stuff i think for me it it increased my threshold for pressure i remember the first ever time i went on the golf course i was so so nervous then you know after a while of doing that you get a little bit better at it then I, i played my first ever competition it didn't matter it was just a junior competition but to me it was the most pressure thing i'd ever i'd ever done and after that my normal rounds of golf were more enjoyable because i didn't feel as much pressure absolutely each time i stepped up the level of competition you know i went to junior events i went to even you know played on on tv and that was a big one for me once i played on tv when i went back to a normal club competition i didn't feel any pressure at all something that would normally have me like shaking and unable to put the ball on the tee was now really easy for me so there's a flip side to that you know you can get to the point where you lose so much pressure that the games become meaningless in a way. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to <laughs> back get Back to your there. nihilism. Everything comes back to nihilism. Yeah. So, you know, there's this, <laughs> there's this nice little balance point of you want to have enough pressure that the game means something to you, but you don't want to have yep. so much pressure that it's tipping you over the edge and making you play awful and having these bad experiences. So, you know, my philosophy on all of this is what they call it in psychology, systematic desensitization. So it's kind of like the scenario of, you know, the first time you do a presentation in front of one person, it's it's going to be nerve wracking. But if you've built up and you do it in front of 10 people, then 100 people the next time, then 1,000 people, once you've done it in front of 1,000 people, doing it in front of 10 is not an issue. Whereas, you know, the first Absolutely. time you did it, it would have been shaking in your boots. So. Yeah, I mean, there's the other theory of, uh, what is it, immersion theory, where you just jump in at the most extreme end and deal with that first. So, you know, if you're frightened of spiders, go in a room full of tarantulas. Or if you're frightened of presenting in front of 10 people, do it in front of 10,000 people. I don't like that <laughs> my, myself. I like to gradually work my way up. So, if you know, if you are one of these people like myself, you get overwhelmed quite quite easily then just gradually implement in these things so you know if if you've never played a competition try and go out with your buddies and play for money once you know that's the next step up instead of you know going into a big competition that's outside of your club and it's all well organized and there are desks there and name tags and things like that you know that could be very daunting if that's your first experience of a competition so there you know other steps yeah i think it absolutely can help with that and i'm probably at that getting to that point of desensitizing myself because now that i've played in so many events and made a lot of friends in those events i'm starting to you know play matches against those guys and hang out with them more and we're all junkies we're all like chasing we've talked about this like we're essentially chasing that feeling we get in these tournaments like when the pressure's on and like we we're now like wanting that and yeah, that that's fun for us. 
it adds a different element to golf for some people that might not be fun for them. So that's not fun yeah. for me. Yeah, it, it, it's become the type of thing where like I've tasted what it's felt like to feel that pressure and play poorly and that doesn't feel so good. But I've also now welcomed it and feel way more comfortable with it. So now I want more. I want to get to the next level of it. So yeah, I'm I'm chasing that a little bit myself. But again, it's I keep thinking to myself, is that fun? And and yes, it is. I'm, I'm having fun doing that. And when it stops being it's fun, not for me. yeah, it, 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 it's not fun for everyone. That's for sure. Even if I play well and there's lots of pressure, I still don't walk off with a lot of fun. <laughs> I've always viewed golf as a battle against myself and like all of my personal flaws. So for me, like golf has been, I guess, this maybe personal development journey for me over the last 25 years. And I feel as I've become more patient and gotten more control of my emotions and stuff like that it, that that's how i viewed it i'm like I'm, I'm able to like confront that part of myself and deal with it and and keep the demons at bay so to speak i guess that's how i've made it make sense for myself but yeah definitely not for everyone do we have any more questions here oh yeah we had one more question i think is what is your scoring average in tournaments relative to handicap and has it gotten better, worse, varies, why? I would say when I first started competing, the spread between my tournament average and my quote unquote normal rounds was far different, maybe four, five, six, seven strokes. So I would obviously play much better when there was less pressure. I think I've narrowed that. I would say it's, I guess this depends on courses played. You know, the, the courses you play in competition are usually set up harder. I think I'm down to like a two-stroke differential, maybe a stroke and a half, meaning that in a normal round of golf and a tournament round of golf, my scoring differential is not more than that much, which I think shows that, yeah, after 100, 200 rounds, I've gotten way more comfortable and my best golf can show up in a tournament now. And that was very hard to do. That took a lot of experience. Also, and it's definitely raised my level of play in normal rounds too because as i said before those rounds are just not daunting to me anymore i don't you know i'm okay playing poorly i'm okay playing great i'm not scared of going low anymore um but yeah that's that's part of that immersion therapy as you said when you put yourself under more pressure and you respond well to it and learn from it then yeah you're going to become a better player i think for me competition always used to make my scores more consistent and not always in a good way i would say the upper end, my highest scores would be lower because I would be grinding it out more. Yep, that makes sense. Compared to, say, just a, a casual round with your buddies. Because, you know, if I was playing a casual round and I played poorly, I'd probably give up, you know, as a, when I was playing competitions, when I was a junior. Whereas in a, in a real competition, I would grind it out more. I would stay focused. So that really lowered my high end of scores. So I'd be able to turn a, a 78 into a 74. But there was a flip side to that because of the pressure. Whenever I was playing well in a competition, if it was just a casual round, I would be able to go deeper. I'd be able to go much lower because there's no consequences. Uh, but when it's in a competition, 
I felt this urge to, oh, I'm playing really well. I have to get in the clubhouse. Preserve and I'd start it. Start speeding yeah. <laughs> things up, preserve it. And I would end up self-sabotaging, not consciously, but, you know, Tony Robbins talks about this internal thermostat where we believe we should be at any one point with our, our skill or our achievement, our level of success. And so I, you know, I, I didn't feel like I should be that that much under par. I didn't feel like I was that good a player, even though I was demonstrating the skills. You know, I'd often be three, four, five, six under par coming into the last few holes, and then I would blow up <laughs> and shoot three over on the last few holes. So yeah, it kind of just tightened my range of scores playing in competitions. As I said, not in a good way. So consistency is not always better. Yeah, I, I think it can do many different things to many different people. But yeah, there's definitely some truth to that for me too. Like my lowest score this year was not in a tournament round. I can definitely go deeper. But yeah, starting to shoot in the club championship, I shot for 116 holes. I think I was even and, and I was only over par on that last day. Everything else I was under par. So that was a huge, again, it was my home course, so I'm more comfortable there. But that was a big, you know, to be under par in most of the rounds was a big change for me and a big kind of breakthrough. So, yeah, I think that covers all the questions. Hopefully, I was not trying to do this episode to brag to everyone. I always I'm I'm trying to put my game under fire and learn stuff and I think a lot of golfers can hopefully see parts of their games and what I was dealing with. And yeah, it was nice to go from that incredible embarrassment <laughs> a couple of years ago that that short putt that still lingers in my head sometimes to being able to handle the pressure and playing well and, and winning you know i've never won anything in golf i've got this awesome trophy now that looks like the claret jug with my name on it so yeah there's so few opportunities to win something significant in golf it was nice to do it hopefully i'll do it again maybe it'll never be again but at least i've got this one thing now that i felt like was 25 years in the making so yeah i told my wife the next day, like having my family there and hugging my dad and my kids, it, it was really one of the best moments of my life. It was really special for me. And I'm sure other people out there who've, you know, won something like this can attest to that too. And if it's in the cards for you, you know, it's something you can work towards. Yeah, I think it's an awesome goal to reach towards, whether it's in your flight or the overall club championship. But again, you know, in the context of having fun and making sure it's not this pursuit that is dragging you down mentally and if you don't do it it's going to make you feel horrible i think the more pressure you put on yourself to do it the farther it's going to go away from you so hopefully everyone got some good things out of this for competitive golf club championship golf whatever type of pressure you're adding to your game cool where can people find your information john you can find a lot of the pieces that I built, including my mental cocoon in my book, The Four Foundations of Golf, which the audiobook is now available. You can find it on Amazon in any major market and check out my website, practical-golf.com. Adam, where can everyone find you? Go to adamyounggolf.com and I've got lots of different training programs there for True Geeks, the NLG course, Next Level Golf. If you're suffering more with left and right, the accuracy plan will help tighten that dispersion. And if you're suffering more with length dispersion, so hitting fats, thins, heels, toes, if you've got the shanks, no. the strike plan, my signature program, my bestseller. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for everyone for listening, your support, your feedback, and we will see you soon with a new episode.